So speaking of The Big Bang, after 19 seasons and 279 episodes, the TV show The Big Bang Theory actually ended a couple years ago. Any Big Bang Theory TV fans out? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Someone's a huge... Greg, yeah. (laughs) Not surprising. Not surprising. Both his reaction and the fanhood. Uh, So the series, uh, TV, The Big Bang Theory, it, it followed the lives of two physicists, at Caltech, uh, I believe, Sheldon and Leonard, and their dorky entourage, as they tried to use their big brains to live their lives. Um, unfortunately, um, being geniuses uh, can make even the simplest tasks complicated and amusing to watch, and this was the premise of the show. Now, what's interesting about this TV program is actually the origin story uh, behind it. Uh, Chuck Lorre, the producer, Chuck Lorre and Bill Prady, they actually started the show as something else. So in the unaired pilot, the pilot's like the first episode anybody writes to to show and see if anyone wants to buy it. In the unaired pilot, Sheldon Cooper was not a physicist, he was a computer geek. And the original pilot did not include any of the now well-known characters, like Penny, Raj, Howard, Bernadette. Instead, it included Leonard Sheldon and two other women, Gilda and Katie. Katie was a street-hardened woman who moves in with these two geeks, But after showing the pilot to test audiences, audiences actually loved Sheldon. They loved Leonard, but they could not stand the ladies. (laughs) So the producers actually scratched the pilot entirely. They rewrote the program, uh, leading to the long-running sitcom that so many people now have come to love. So every great work of art, or at least every TV show, (laughs) has a beginning. Sometimes the beginning is actually more interesting than we might have thought. Uh, The Big Bang Theory uh, didn't just pop into existence. Someone thought of that. Uh, Someone created it. Someone experimented with it and redid it and made it what it is. Could the same be said of the universe in which we live? Did it have a beginning? And if it did, is the beginning of the universe maybe a little bit more interesting than what we thought? And if the universe did have a beginning... Who or what came up with it? Who thought it up? Who wrote it down? Who turned the concept into the reality of everything around us? That's actually what I want to talk about with you this morning, the origin of everything and what it means for us. I know that's an ambitious topic. Go big or go home, I say. And I want to do this as the next installment of our current series, which, as you know, it's called Six Reasons I Might Lose My Faith, Six Reasons I Won't. So during this series, we're tackling the reasons that people have for believing or, or not believing. Uh, the skeptics, the, the non-believers, the atheists and agnostics in our lives, they're not dumb. They have reasons for not believing in, in God and Jesus. Now, Christians and theists have responses to those reasons. We've talked about those at least in the first half of the series. But in the second half of the series, we're talking about some of the more positive reasons to believe in in God and Jesus. Last week, for example, Pastor Jeremy, he told you about the design argument. And the design argument suggests that the universe, as we understand it, is too weirdly structured, and it is weirdly structured, to have arisen by chance. It bears every indication that it was designed by someone, something intentionally. Now, I know that last week's sermon was really challenging. These are a lot of complicated ideas that might have really, you know, challenged your brains. Well, if you were challenged last week, well then, good luck to you this morning. Uh, This morning, I want to talk with you about a different 
argument for God's existence. It's called the cosmological argument. And it's not so much science as it is philosophy and science. The word cosmological comes from the word cosmos, or cosmology, uh, which is actually the study of the origins of the cosmos. And the cosmological argument, it's frankly one of the oldest arguments for the existence of God. It's also not entirely a Christian argument. Uh, Muslim scholars, notably a theologian in the 11th century named Al-Ghazali, have made the cosmological argument. So the argument isn't necessarily an argument for the existence of the Judeo-Christian God, but rather the necessity of the existence of some type of creator or creators. So if you want to pinpoint the precise identity of that creator, you have to have a different discussion. But the argument, the cosmological argument, comes in many forms. And I want to present to you this morning its most basic form, which is oftentimes known as the Kalam cosmological argument. And I should tell you that I am borrowing quite heavily from one of my favorite Christian philosophers and theologians, a guy by the name of William Lane Craig. Craig is widely regarded as an expert on the cosmological argument, its history, its intricacies. He literally wrote the book on it. There might be no more person alive on earth or maybe in history that is more astute when it comes to this argument. So the cosmological argument is a philosophical and scientific argument for God's existence that follows three simple steps, one leading to the next. Here are the three steps. First, anything that begins to exist has a cause. Second, the universe began to exist. Third, the universe, universe, therefore, has a cause best understood as God. And we'll talk about that. Fairly simple argument. What I want to do with you this morning is actually walk you through the steps of this very simple argument. Then I want to raise some objections that skeptics raise when it comes to this argument. Finally, I want to talk about this argument and how it might impact our lives because it really should. So let's take a look at the first step of the argument. Anything that begins to exist has a cause. Note that I am not arguing that anything that exists has a cause. There are things that exist, but theoretically we're not caused. If God exists, for example, he would be in the category of uncaused things. I'm not saying that anything that exists has a cause. I'm saying that anything that begins to exist, anything that has a start has a cause, a cause to his existence. This is Consistent with our intuitive observations about life all around us, if anything has a starting point, something started it. When I drove my car here to church this morning, I started it. When the statue David came into existence, uh, someone made it. When, when you were born as a tiny little seven and a half pound baby, you had a cause. The, the cause was your, your parents' passionate and somewhat disgusting affection for each other. <laughs> Things don't just pop into existence by themselves. If things have a starting point, they have some kind of starter, something that initiated it. This is both intuitively obvious and entirely consistent with everything we see in reality. Anything that begins to exist has some type of cause. That's step one. Which takes us to the second step. The universe began to exist. The universe is what we know to exist. It's the universe. It's everything that we know is real. What scientists and philosophers seem to now agree on, mostly at least, is that the universe began to exist. It had a starting point. Interestingly, this is a relatively new belief. 
For most of human history, people have thought the universe has simply always existed. The the Greeks believed that the universe was past eternal. It just kept going back and back and back and back with no starting point. Turtles all the way down, as they say. Not only was the universe past eternal, they thought, but it was fairly static. It just didn't change. It was the Hebrews and other religious groups which first suggested that the universe had an origin point. You probably know the most famous line from the Bible which suggests this. What's the most famous line from the Bible? There it is. In the beginning. So everything that exists had a beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what we don't really appreciate is that this was a radical notion at the time and for centuries hence. For thousands of years, scholars and thinkers just dismissed the idea, the Judeo-Christian and Islamic notion that God created the universe at the beginning of the time. They believed the universe has just always existed in a basically unchanging way and that it always just would keep existing. About 100 years ago, though, scientists started observing things about our universe that changed the story. Einstein's theory of general relativity, for example, included equations that described the universe fairly well, but required a single point of origin for time and space. So Einstein actually didn't like the idea that the universe had a beginning, but he knew that if his equations were true, and they turned out to be true, that it was sort of a necessary conclusion, that the universe had a beginning. Then astronomers like Edwin Hubble discovered that the universe is actually rapidly expanding through their big, huge telescope. They looked out into the cosmos, into the stars, and saw that everything is rapidly moving away from everything else, which suggests that at one point in history, everything was much closer to everything else. Other scientists discovered other aspects of our universe that led us to believe that not only was everything much closer together, but that everything at one point was really, 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 really closer together. Like all the matter, all the energy of the universe occupying the same pixel of space in what's called a singularity. From this single point of origin, all the energy in the galaxy exploded in a large Big Bang, bang, which 14 billion years later, that's how long ago the Big Bang theoretically happened, produced what we have today. Most scientists accept the theory of the Big Bang as the beginning of our known universe. It makes sense of the equations, it makes sense of our observations, and it suggests a definite beginning point to everything. It's not just science. There are other reasons to believe in the beginning of the universe. For example, math tells us to. If you studied math in high school or college, anybody remember anything that you studied about math in high school or college? Maybe, okay, like one person remembers something they learned from math in high school or college. If you studied math in high school or college, you might remember using infinity in your equations. Remember the symbol for infinity? It's the lazy eight, the eight on its side. That's the symbol for infinity, which means a a set of something with no limits. An infinite number of cats. An infinite number of worship songs. Yay! An infinite number of sermon points. Boo! (laughs) Well, I'm not a mathematician, so take this with a huge grain of salt. But my understanding, and this is based on what Aristotle taught about math, is that there are actually two types of infinity. There is potential infinity... And there's actual infinity. We can use potential infinity in math equations, which we do. But when it comes to actual infinity, 
there can be no such thing. There can be no such thing as an actually infinite number of anything in our finite universe. We have never actually observed an actual number of infinite anything. When we start talking about an actual infinite anything, we run into all kinds of paradoxes and contradictions. For example, here's an illustration used by William Lane Craig. Let's say that I have an infinite number of marbles. I'm holding all the marbles. And let's say that I wanted to give you some marbles. Now, I could give you all the marbles. I could just take you, take all the marbles. Now I have no marbles. You have all the marbles. Or let's say that from my infinite number of marbles, I want to give you half of them. And I want to give you half of them by giving you all the odd-numbered marbles. One, three, five, seven, up to infinity. So you have all the odd-numbered marbles. I have all the even-numbered marbles. But you have an infinite number of marbles because half of infinity is still infinity. I also have an infinity of marbles. So even though I gave you half of my marbles, I still have all the marbles, and you have all the marbles. I gave you half of all the marbles, but you have all the marbles, and I have all the marbles, and you have all the marbles. So if your brain is twisted there, it's because it makes no sense. And that's the point. You can't do these things. These brain twisters demonstrate that an actual number of infinite things is impossible in the real world. And here's the rub. As far as we know, this applies to time. Think about each moment in the past as a marble. 2021 is a marble. 2020 is a marble. 2019 is a marble. 2018 is a marble. But an actual infinite number of moments is impossible. The universe cannot stretch back to infinity because an actual infinity is a contradiction. So the very rules of math suggest that the universe cannot stretch back to infinity. Or here's another way of looking about it. Uh, maybe you're familiar with the laws of thermodynamics. In particular, the second law of thermodynamics. Anybody want to blow us away with what the second law of thermodynamics is? It's the law of entropy. So the Law of entropy states that in a closed system, things tend from order to disorder. Molecules, structure, break down. It's one of Newton's laws. We have never found a situation in which entropy doesn't happen. I mean, look at your children's bedrooms. They always disintegrate from order to disorder. Always, every day, sometimes in seconds. Things were organized, they were beautiful, they were clean, and now they're a mess. That happens in the universe too. In fact, it is happening. Things are spreading out, breaking up, becoming more disorganized. Entropy always happens. Here's how this is relevant. If the universe has always existed, if the universe is past eternal, the universe would have had plenty of time to reach absolute entropy. There would have been plenty of time for your child's bedroom and the universe to reach complete decay. I mean, you've had an infinite amount of time, and yet the universe has not reached absolute complete decay, which strongly implies that we had an absolute beginning and we have not reached the point at which we would have reached absolute, uh, 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 what's the word, entropy. This is just another reason that most thinkers now agree that the universe had an absolute beginning. So, step one of the cosmological argument is that anything that begins to exist has a cause. Step two is that the universe began to exist. Therefore, step three, the universe had a cause. Now, what caused the universe? What caused the Big Bang? 
What can we really know about the nature of this cause? Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk more generally about the nature of what this cause might be because we can learn something about the nature of the cause by talking about the nature of what was caused. Here's what I mean. First, since the universe that exists consists of all space and time, the cause must transcend or be beyond space and time. The cause must exist outside of or beyond what was caused. So the cause must be timeless. The cause must be spaceless. Also, the cause must be immaterial. It must be, in some sense, spirit. It must exist outside of matter, given that the cause preceded the creation of matter. Also, the cause must be powerful enough to create and result and initiate what resulted. The cause had to have within itself the ability to cause something like the universe. Just like Michelangelo had to have it within himself to paint the Sistine Chapel. Finally, the cause had to have a will. There had to be something about the cause that initiated this first act at this moment as opposed to another moment. There was a moment when the cause did something of its own volition to result in the beginning of the universe. Why it did that must be the result of some act of will or mind. Now, you might not have realized this, but I have just described God to you, a transcendent, immaterial, powerful, willful entity Uh, Thomas Aquinas, the great Catholic thinker, he calls God the uncaused cause. And this is why. By virtue of the nature of the universe alone, we have already identified a cause as beyond time and space, immaterial, powerful, and with some sort of volition that chooses to act in the most basic sense. That's God. So that's the cosmological argument. Like I mentioned, it's one of the oldest, most compelling arguments for God's existence. It might not be one that you have ever thought of, but among philosophers and scientists, it has won many converts. And I actually think this is kind of important. Even if you've never considered it, maybe it will help you to know that some of the most brilliant thinkers alive give credence to this argument. Having said that, it hasn't converted everybody. In fact, plenty of people reject the cosmological argument including some of the smartest people in the world, uh, Immanuel Kant, David Hume, Stephen Hawking, Bertrand Russell, the famous British atheist. Now, how would they dispute the argument? Well, that's a good question. For the sake of being intellectually honest with ourselves and the world, it's worth talking about. Why do people reject the argument? Let me talk about that. In my understanding of cosmological argument, people find ways to challenge every step. For example, let's take the First premise, that everything that begins to exist has a cause. Some people say this isn't necessarily true. It it at least shouldn't have the force of law, as though it's impossible for something to start without a cause. I mean, how certain can we be of that really? Maybe there are some things that begin to exist that don't have a cause. Uh, For example, perhaps you've heard of quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics is the study of the subatomic realm. Did you know that there is an invisible world smaller than atoms and molecules called the quantum realm? If you're wondering, the quantum realm is where Ant-Man lives. (laughs) Now, I don't get quantum physics. Most people don't. There's quarks, there's gluons, there's the Higgs boson, other quantum particles. But here's the thing. Quantum experts tell us that occasionally... 
within the quantum realm, matter just pops into existence. So quantum physicists say we have examples of particles appearing out of practically nothing. Just like a magician can pull a rabbit out of a hat, based on what we observe in the quantum realm, it's possible, they say, that the universe appeared out of nothing. Here's the problem, though, and you might have already picked it up. The quantum realm is not nothing. It's a realm. So, yeah, magicians might have pulled a rabbit out of a hat, but they still had the hat. So even if the universe somehow emerged from the quantum realm, it didn't come from nothing. It came from the quantum realm. And besides which, even if the universe came from the quantum realm, what's the next question to ask? Where did the quantum realm come from? It had to come from somewhere. Something can't come from nothing. But skeptics challenge the second and the third steps too. The second premise is that the universe began to exist. That's the Big Bang. Now there are scientists and philosophers who still challenge this idea. They say that it might just be a brute fact that the universe has just always existed. This was uh, Bertrand Russell's uh, famous point. He's a British atheist. It just might be the brute fact that the universe has always been around. Uh, after it was discovered that the universe is expanding from a single point, for example, some cosmologists theorized that after the universe would expand like really, really, really big, what would happen next? It would contract. And then what would happen? It would expand. It would contract and just kind of bounce back and forth. So big bang, big crunch, big bang, big crunch, big bang, big crunch. Maybe the universe has been doing that forever. It's called the oscillating model of the universe, just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Just gets big and then small, and then big and then small. But here's the thing. There is no evidence, there's no scientific evidence that the universe will contract. The mathematical models which scientists have come up with to describe a contracting universe don't work. Scientists, even atheist scientists, have a very high degree of confidence that the universe will keep expanding forever. In fact, the universe is like getting faster. It's accelerating faster as it expands. After the Big Bang, there will be no big crunch. So all the evidence we have is that the universe came from a single point in terms of space and time. What about the third premise, though? How would skeptics challenge the idea that the universe had a cause best understood as God? Well, skeptics say that we are making way too much of a leap here. Maybe something else caused the universe. Why give God the credit? I mean, aren't Christians always doing this? Giving God the credit for stuff we don't know that he necessarily did. Oh, God, thank you for this empty parking space. Well, was it God who gave us that parking space? <laughs> or was it like the person who left the parking space gave you the parking space? Uh, same thing here. I actually have a skeptical friend who criticizes the cosmological argument on this step. He says, okay, okay, so the universe had a cause, but why is that cause God? I mean, isn't this just religious people looking for reasons to believe in God? Isn't this just another God of the gaps argument? A God of the gaps argument is when we get to a gap in our knowledge, something we don't understand, like the creation of the universe, we're like, oh, God must have done it. What, how can we conclude that? Well, this is a very fair point. Christians have made this mistake before. Skeptics would caution us to not draw too many conclusions with too much certainty about something that happened 14 billion years ago that none of us were around to witness, 
Was it God or something else? How certain can we be? But this is a good time to mention something really important. When it comes to arguments for God's existence, we're not talking about certainty. We're talking about plausibility. We're talking about probability. Is there something other than God that could have caused the universe? I suppose. But it could have been God. It might have been likely be God. In fact, the very nature of whatever caused the universe has to be pretty God-like. I mean, the cause of the universe has to be beyond space, beyond time, more than matter, powerful and able to create the universe as an expression of his will. That sounds like God. Certainly something worth, like, worshiping. And it's perfectly reasonable and plausible to think that. So skeptics have the rebuttals of the arguments. Theists have the responses of the rebuttals. On and on it goes. Where does that leave us? Well, this brings us to the so what question. As far as we're concerned, what does the cosmological argument mean for you and I? It's a good question. If these ideas don't really impact us, don't really affect us, then we should wonder why and how we're talking about them. So with the last few minutes I have, let me try to answer that question. First, if you're a seeker, and I hope we have seekers here, if you're a seeker trying to figure out what you think about God, this is a good argument to think through. Even if you reject it, it's worth contemplating. I mean, the stakes are so high. When it comes to the possibility that God exists, the stakes are so high to that question for you that it's worth contemplating the oldest and best arguments for God's existence. Or if you have skeptics in your life that you're talking with about faith, and I hope you do. We should all have people in our lives that we're talking with about our faith. This is a good argument to discuss. It's a compelling argument. It's an intuitive argument. It just kind of makes sense that if something has a beginning, it has some sort of beginner. Uh, William Lane Craig, for example, he tells a story of being at a scholarly conference in Germany many years ago during his doctoral research on the cosmological argument. While he was there at this conference, he met a, a prestigious uh, uh, physicist from an Eastern European uh, university. And this woman, in a, a moment of vulnerability, uh, said to Craig that physics had destroyed her belief in God. And when she saw the world, all she saw was darkness without, darkness within. Craig listened to her very empathetically and explained very compassionately that he had a, actually a very different experience. He explained that the discoveries of physics and science and the intuitions of philosophy actually led him to the exact opposite conclusion that God is real. I mean, the fact that we know the universe had a beginning gives us very strong philosophical reason to think that the universe had a beginner. Craig somewhat boldly gave her a copy of his dissertation on the cosmological argument, which she gobbled up over the next few days. She came back a few days later. She admitted that she had no idea belief in God could be so logical, so supported by science and philosophy. She said she changed her mind about God because of cosmology. And after lots more conversations with Craig and with Craig's wife, Jan, eventually she changed her mind about Jesus. Based on what we know about science and philosophy, belief in God makes sense. It's at least as plausible as not believing in God, and maybe even more plausible than the many other arguments we have arguing for the existence of God. That should matter to us. Belief in God makes sense. It's not blind faith. A lot of people think that it is. Yes, it takes faith, 
but it's not blind faith. It can make a lot of sense. But what about on a more personal level, though? What does the cosmological argument mean for you and I more personally? Or does it mean anything? Well, let me close with this. The question of how the universe began raises another question for us, I think. At least raises another question for me. What question does it raise? What question comes up? So the question of how the universe began, what other question does it raise? How's the universe end? Yeah, I want to know who said that because it's a really important observation. Excellent. The question of how the universe began, 10,000 points to Marcos. The question of how the universe began raises the question of how the universe will end. And what will the end look like? There's actually a lot of scientific research being done on this. It's a very new, young field, but scientists have some very good ideas about, based on like math and probability, on what will happen at the end of the universe. What will likely happen at the end of the universe is something that scientists call the heat death of the universe. Yay, this is our future. <laughs> it's what will happen trillions of years in the future when all the energy, all the heat, all the matter of the universe gives into entropy and becomes one big thin mass of disorder like your child's bedroom permanently. No light, no life, nothing. Just a big, thin, dark, lonely, permanent mess. The heat death of the universe. That's what scientists expect, reasonably so, at the end of our time. Now as Christians... We can hope for more than that. I mean, if a transcendent, all-powerful God is real, then we can believe that he had something more in mind than the heat death of the universe. We learn from Scripture that God, in fact, has plans for the end of the universe that are more exciting than that, more exciting than even the most anticipated TV series finale. The book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, does not describe the end of the universe as a cold, dark, lonely place. It describes a renewed creation. One free of pain and death and sin. We don't know when God will bring about the new creation. We don't know if God's going to bring it about before the earth is destroyed by an exploding sun or after. We don't know. But Jesus insists that it will. Even the heat death of the universe will not be an obstacle to what God intends to do. Basically, even though the universe itself is expected to die, doesn't mean that God can't bring it back to life in more perfect form. I mean, this is the lesson of Jesus, right? Jesus' life and body gave into entropy, to death. The same thing that will happen in the universe happened to Jesus. His body was laid in the grave. He was given over to death and decay. But God raised him from the dead to give him newness of life just because the universe itself looks like it will slip into the dark nothingness of the grave doesn't mean that God doesn't have something else in mind for it. I mean, what's the old saying? God finishes what he starts if he started the universe, if he caused it, he's going to finish it. And by finishing it, I don't mean end it. Uh, I mean continuing it into what it was always meant to be. A place of joy and peace and beauty. A place without death, sin, or entropy where your room stays organized. Imagine the joy. He can do that for you and I, too. I know I haven't used any Bible here this morning, or at least much. I mean, there's just not a lot of quantum mechanics in Scripture. I looked. But there's a verse that I've really been thinking about all week that I think relates here. It comes from the book of Philippians. Paul says to the Philippians in chapter 1, he says this, He who began a good work in you, he who started a good work in you, he who caused 
to begin a good work in you. We'll carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God finishes what he starts. And if he started the universe, he's going to finish it. He's going to bring it to completion. He started you. He's going to finish you. He's going to bring you to completion. What does that mean? He's going to rid your life of sin. He's going to rid your body of disease. He's going to fix your mind. It's not just going to complete you. He's going to complete me. He's going to complete us. He didn't just start you. He started us. He started his church. He started rooftop. He's going to finish us. He's going to join us together with the rest of all his people from all the ages in perfect harmony. He's going to restore us to the angels in a cosmic community. He finishes what he starts. He started it all. He's going to finish it. Even as your life is falling apart, even as your body is giving in to entropy and disease, even as our church disintegrates, I mean, we're not going to last forever. Even as our church disintegrates by the entropic ravages of time, even as our earth is burned up by an exploding sun, God will bring it to completion. And he will do so by the same power with which he brought everything into existence. And the same power which brought his son back to life again. And the same power which can make all things new. Bring all things to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Including the universe, including you, including me, including us. And what we learn from this story of creation is that God is very patient as he does this. I mean, if the scientists are right, God started this project 14 billion years ago. And he waited a very long time to get to this point, this little sliver on the timeline of cosmic history. He waited 14 billion years ago to get to this little sliver. Apparently, this is what was required to get here. God waited 14 billion years to get here. And here we are. He waited all this time to get here. He waited all this time to get to this point where we could exist in which, in which he could enter and tell us that he's real and tell us what his plans are. God is very, very patient. He could wait another 14 billion years ago to come again. Who knows? But what does the scripture say? With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. 14 billion years isn't much longer than that. 